The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders Teach Season 2, our mini-series on medical education. I'm Dr. Molly Hoyblein, joined by my co-host, Dr. Ira Kurznevskaya. On today's episode, we'll discuss interprofessional education and practice with Dr. Maria Wamsley. Before we get started on that, Ira, will you remind the audience what we do on this show? Sure, Molly. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast for all things medical education. We use expert interviews to bring you teaching pearls and practice-changing knowledge to inspire the next generation of medical educators. We have a great conversation with our guest, Dr. Maria Wamsley, tonight, and we cover the competencies and subdomains for interprofessional education, how to get started about creating interprofessional experiences, and really what's Dr. Wamsley's vision for the future? How can we create a totally interprofessional medical experience? Dr. Maria Wamsley is a clinician educator and professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. She directs the UCSF Program for Interprofessional Practice and Education, which oversees the development of interprofessional curricula for learners and health professions. She also co-directs the Pisces Longitudinal Integrated Clerkship and is a member of the UCSF Academy of Medical Educators. Her areas of interest include teaching and assessment of interprofessional collaboration skills and the impact of longitudinal integrated clerkships. And a reminder that most episodes are available for free CME credit through VCU Health CE for all health professionals at curbsetters.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. So without further ado, let's get to it. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Wamsley. Are you okay with us calling you Maria for the show? Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, we'd like to get started with some rapid fire questions just so we can get to know you and our audience can get to know you a little better. Um, could you start with a one liner to describe yourself? Yeah. So I would say I'm a clinician educator, a primary care provider, and a UCSF lifer who is passionate about teaching interprofessional learners about collaboration. I'm also an avid outdoors person, um, and I'm thrilled to make Northern California my home. There are a lot of amazing places to explore outdoors. Do you have a favorite hike, or are you more of like a biker, or what's what's your outdoor choice? I have to say, like, I, I try to do most everything. I love mountain biking. I'm also an avid cross-country skier. Um, I love to hike. Um, we have a place up near Tahoe. And so I spend a fair amount of time up there during the pandemic and hopefully moving forward. Oh, lovely. I also follow Maria on social meds and there's almost always a weekly bike photo. So I think your biking also is a, <laughs> is a big part of this, Maria. From what I remember. And I also love the, you know, UCSF, you can stay forever. Uh, can you remind us, are you medical student, resident, faculty, or what was the... Was I was a resident uh, and then joined the faculty here. Yeah. So I've been on faculty for over 20 years now. Yeah. No it need to pass. stay sick. You get sucked in. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Well, in that time or, or more recently, Maria, what is a book, movie, or show that you've watched recently or experienced recently and enjoyed? Yeah, I am an avid reader of fiction. So th this was a tough question for me. Um, it was hard to kind of narrow it down to one, but I will share a book that I read um, in the last few months um, that I loved. It's called Hamnet. 
and it's by Maggie O'Farrell. One of my friends who's a high school English teacher recommended it to me. Um, and it, um, it's really about Shakespeare's son who died at age 11. And it's told through the eyes of his mother, Agnes. And it really is a poignant story about the grief of loss and about the ravages of the plague in England. So highly recommend it. Beautifully written. Not a long read, but really nicely done. And with that medical twist, right, to, to read about the plague. Nice. And is there something that you are working on currently or that you have recently changed in your educational approach or your clinical practice? Yeah, like a lot of people um, during the past few years, I think there's just been this reckoning and really trying to examine issues like diversity, equity, and inclusion. So that that has been, I think, a place where I've put some focus in my own teaching, uh, thinking about the learning environment that I'm creating, thinking about um, biases that I bring to interactions, um, trying to make things more equitable, and then examining kind of the curriculum that I've developed with an anti-racist lens. So like a lot of people in education, I think I'm in it because I feel like I'm constantly learning. And here's a place where I I think we're being pushed by our learners. And it's been really, I think, amazing to really add that skill set to what I do. But I'm a novice. I I won't claim to have expertise yet. I think all of us are learning to uh, be better at incorporating kind of that anti-oppressive lens that you're talking about, Maria. And I wonder, is there um, recently some meaningful advice or feedback that you've received uh, or even during your career um, that has really stuck with you? Yeah, I, I think one thing, it's not exactly advice or feedback, but I guess from personal experience, um, I will share just kind of what I think is important. One thing that I tend to be an introvert. And so um, I think early in my career, I wasn't as, I was much more hesitant to kind of put myself out there. And I would encourage folks really at any stage of their career, but particularly I think when they're junior faculty or residents or students and maybe a little bit more hesitant or less confident to put yourself out there and to reach out to um, someone whose work you admire or someone who's in a field that um, you're aspiring to. Um, I think there's no greater compliment to that person. And I think, you know, often those relationships end up in a mentoring relationship. So I think put yourself out there, take that chance, have that confidence to do that. Um, I think that when I've done that, I've been uh, pleasantly surprised. I love that advice because in academic medicine, you know, there are just so many pathways you can take and sometimes you don't know where something is going to lead you and just making that jump often opens up many more doors. Wonderful. Well, in the interest of time, let's get started with a case. So we have John. He's an early career clinician educator who wants to take on a bigger role in undergraduate medical education and curricular design. He's especially interested in interprofessional education because he knows that teams who optimize the performance and communicate with all members take better care of patients. He wants not only to learn more about the topic, but consider how he can dive deeper into promoting it at his institution or even crafting an interprofessional experience with students. So let's just start off with some basics. How do you define interprofessional education? Yeah, probably the most widely used definition comes from the World Health Organization. They put together a report in 2010 promoting interprofessional education and collaborative practices. It's kind of a way to address some of global health challenges. And their definition is that interprofessional education occurs when members of two or more professions come together to learn with, from, and about each other 
to improve collaboration skills and patient outcomes. And I think the key part of that phrase is learning with, from, and about. And that's kind of a mantra you'll hear when we talk about interprofessional education. I will say that another term that is being frequently used in the literature, probably in the last few years, is interprofessional education and collaborative practice. So instead of just IPE, using IPECP. Um, and, and that's really, I think, acknowledging the fact that you can't have interprofessional education without collaborative practice, and you can't have collaborative practice without interprofessional education. So they really are entwined, and they need to develop in tandem. And Maria, was there something that really struck a chord with uh, health professionals that were like, oh, we should name this? We should come up with this definition. Did something happen? Were people just, you know, brainstorming in the shower and thought about, oh, man, why don't we do more IPE? Kind of, is there something that came up that led to its rise? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it it has a pretty long history. Um, It hasn't always been called interprofessional education. So a lot of times people will talk about interdisciplinary care. And, you know, certainly back in the 60s and 70s, there's references to it as a way to address workforce issues or population health. But I would say kind of the more modern movement came about as there was an increasing focus on patient safety. So that happened with a series of Institute of Medicine reports in the late 90s, early 2000s. And then subsequent to that, Interprofessional education was really kind of highlighted as a way to improve collaboration skills and to improve patient outcomes, particularly around patient safety. And then subsequent to that, I think it began to gain some traction. And in 2011, a group came together in the United States, leaders from different health professional uh, training organizations to come up with what are kind of collaborative care competencies that all health professional learners should have. And those are called the IPEC core competencies. And could you outline those briefly? Of course. They were first published in 2011 and they were revised in 2016. And they divide those core competencies into kind of four different domains. The domains are, some of them are pretty obvious. So values and ethics for interprofessional practice. So kind of maintaining that climate of mutual respect and shared values. There's interprofessional communication. So, you know, having those skills to be able to effectively communicate across professions with and with patients. Roles and responsibilities. So not only knowing what your own role is, but knowing the roles and responsibilities of other health professionals and being able to work using that knowledge in a collaborative fashion to improve patient outcomes. And then finally, teams and teamwork. So, you know, having some knowledge about the processes and the development of teams, uh, being able to take on different roles in the team as the need arises. So those are kind of the four domains. And within each of those domains, there are sub-competencies. I feel like those rolled off the tongue so quickly, Maria. That's amazing. I, I feel like I, if somebody asked me, I would not be able to come up with those domains really uh, off the top of my head. So I just appreciate you listing them and not only and teasing us that there are subdomains within that as well. Yeah, there there are a lot. Uh, the, the document's pretty detailed, but I feel like it's a helpful framework to kind of think about sometimes teamwork can be a little bit of an amorphous thing. So what what are we really talking about when we're talking about these skills? What are we looking for in our learners? What are we trying to teach them? And it's, you know, it's sort of amazing that this is just a side thing. Like it feels like it should just be part of our everyday learning experience because it is part of our everyday working experience. And, and to have our learners kind of siloed just 
you know, it, it feels sort of artificial. So I think you already mentioned kind of the the benefits in terms of patient safety of incorporating IPE. Are there some other benefits that you see of including these educational experiences? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's pretty clear from the literature, we have enough evidence to support the fact that it, um, you know, it improves students' knowledge around uh, collaborative care. Um, it Im- improves their skills um, and attitudes towards team-based care. So when we have these educational initiatives, I think there's growing evidence that it can change behaviors, although I, that evidence is, is more limited. And then like many educational interventions, I think the holy grail is like, does it actually improve patient outcomes? And I don't think we've shown that yet. Um, I think that that's certainly an area of focus, um, but n- not, n- not something that we've proven at this point. Yeah, well, I would say from from personal experience, I, I have done a um, facilitated a, a short session with that you organized. Um, and it just really was interesting to see the learners from different backgrounds bringing their own experiences and sharing those together. And then I had the opportunity to do a longitudinal course a couple of years ago that was around hospice and palliative care. And just so interesting to learn kind of how different health professions come at different questions. And, you know, I feel like I learned so much from just kind of rethinking my lens of goals of care discussions and um, really being able to to step back and look at it from a different perspective. So very valuable. Yeah, I feel like for me, the work in this area has been some of the most enriching as an educator, just because I think um, educators struggle with some of the same challenges, but we come at it from slightly different angles. And so I think it has been really eye-opening for me as well. It makes me wish that we could use anecdotal evidence to support our interventions because I <laughs> feel like each of us have that experience where you had, whether it was a patient scenario or kind of a you know leadership conference or some sort of uh, workshop that you were at when you were able to see something from someone else's perspective and actually like that one domain about roles and responsibilities, like truly see where someone else's role is and understanding how they work to benefit the patient ultimately. I feel like each of us have moments where we can say, yes, this worked and uh, the, you know, the patient care uh, was optimized, though I know that would not stand up to rigorous uh, evaluation <laughs> so well. We'll hold off on that. But I wonder, um, Maria, if we can think about kind of John's situation in particular, the case that Molly introduced, I wonder if he's looking to kind of find meaningful interprofessional interactions or experiences for his learners. How can he work forward to kind of come up with an experience or a curriculum that supports those four domains you talked about? Is there a recipe or a certain kind of steps to success that John might be able to learn from you? Yeah, so um, I think what I would say is I'm a huge fan of Kearns, so uh, the six steps of curriculum development. So whenever I'm feeling stymied, I kind of go back to that. I I would think about what are the learning objectives for the experience, specifically the interprofessional learning objectives, and how do they link to the competencies? Like what competencies are you aiming for? And then think about what are the best ways in which to kind of teach that material. I think, you know, from teaching strategies, because interprofessional education is learning with, from, and about, didactic strategies actually don't work very well for this content. And so, um, like you were kind of hinting at, there has to be that meaningful interaction uh, between learners. And 
I think things that have been successful are, you know, small groups where they can bring their uh, knowledge, skills, and kind of expertise together and learn from each other. Um, simulation is another place where I think interprofessional education has had some traction. And then in clinical settings. So, you know, I think that designing those experiences in clinical settings, kind of thinking about what opportunities exist for interprofessional learning in your setting. So, are there, you know, interprofessional case conferences or do interprofessional rounds happen? Do you have uh, team meetings? Um, where are the places where learners can be incorporated and kind of see interprofessional work in action? And sometimes I think it means developing those elements. So if they don't exist and you're trying to create a clinical experience for learners, thinking about what things do you need to add to the work environment? I think the other key thing that I would make a shout out for is the processes that are so important in terms of teamwork, the time for reflection, like what have you learned, and also time for feedback. So feedback between team members, I think is really critical. So that that's another piece that I think intentionally adding those pieces um, to any curricular experience that you develop. And what are some challenges that John might anticipate with trying to roll out some of these? And how can he try to overcome them? Yeah. You know, if you look at the literature, it's like logistics, logistics, logistics. When you're dealing with different professions, at UCSF, our, all of our schools are, have different calendars. So it's like trying to figure out how to get the learners in the same space is challenging. I also think, you know, there's a lot of things to be taught in health professions training um, for each professional school. And so trying to find the time and the curriculum um, and prioritizing this topic. Administrative support to kind of deal with some of the logistical barriers. Space. I know in San Francisco, we are pressed for space in our clinical setting. So finding space for learners, if this is a clinical experience. And then faculty development, I think, is something that is often overlooked. I don't know about you guys, but this was not part of my training. So, you know, when I first started this work, you know, I felt wholly unequipped to actually teach it. So, I think, you know, making sure our faculty feel comfortable with the content and the concepts. Those are, I think, just some of the barriers, but uh, some of the biggest barriers. I was going to say, I feel like we're lucky to have you because you have gotten the buy-in from the leadership, which I feel like sometimes there's, you know, uh, we brought this up early in, earlier in terms of the siloed nature of health professions education and kind of hierarchical societies and things like that. Sometimes it's just hard to get the the upper whoever's making decisions, their buy-in, but I feel like you've been able to overcome that. And I wonder, was there a recipe there, Maria, that you that you have to kind of getting wow. that leadership buy-in? Yeah, I feel like, you know, I've, I've been doing the work at UCSF for probably like 10 years. So it, it was, I would say, to be persistent and don't be disappointed. There were certainly many, many bumps along the road. And sometimes it felt like, you know, Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill. I think, you know, like m many changes in, in education, I think you probably need the bottom-up approach. So engaging learners you know, the grassroots, you know, they think it's important. I think that they they have the ear of leadership. And so I think getting learners involved. And then I also think you have to work from a top-down approach. And then looking for allies. I mean, I think that I definitely could not have stayed in this work without having other people who were pushing for this as well. So I think all of those are important. 
I think the other thing that's been a big driver in change is accreditation standards, right? So that's kind of like the bare minimum. But if your accrediting body requires that you have interprofessional education and they're going to come and visit you, I think that's a strong argument for why you need to have a program. And so that, you know, assessment drives learning while accreditation drives curriculum. And I think that has been a helpful argument that we've made. And can you describe some of the initiatives that you've helped create? Yeah, so... Uh, At UCSF, we have five different health professional uh, training programs on campus. So we have um, dentistry, medicine, nursing, pharmacy, and physical therapy. And we've created a foundational curriculum for those learners. Molly, that may have been what you participated in, where learners come together. It's, It's roughly once a quarter, but the idea is that, you know, we bring learners together in small groups that are facilitated. They learn some, you know, important kind of foundational skills and interprofessional collaboration. So we have, like, we have a session on communication tools. We have a session on roles. Uh, responsibilities and scope of practice. We have a session on conflict management. So learners have the opportunity, they do a little bit of pre-work to kind of prepare them for the session, and then they come together and do skills practice. And that, that's that been, I think, successful. It's a huge lift. I think we have over 600 learners, and that I think can sometimes be a challenge with interprofessional education is depending on what scale you're doing it on, if you're, you know, engaging you know, an an entire class of learners can be a little bit daunting. And then the other curriculum that I've developed with a number of other faculty is our interprofessional standardized patient exercise, where we have learners from seven different professions participating, and they come together in uh, teams of four in our simulation center, and they work together on a, a case that's a standardized patient um, with a complex medical history. Um, And so that's been a really nice opportunity for them to interact around a clinical scenario. Um, And as part of that, they get feedback not only from the patient, but from their fellow team members. And so, uh, and they also get to see other health professionals in action. So they get to see the physical therapists do their exam. And I I think that's been a really nice uh, learning opportunity for our students. Maria, I know that COVID-19 has changed everything and we can't kind of go through a podcast without mentioning it, but I just wonder, is there a way that some of these experiences pivoted or maybe you created new interprofessional education experiences in the time of the pandemic? I saw that um, I think the University of South Florida College had kind of a synchronous, asynchronous advocacy module that they did for their IPE um, group. And I was just wondering if there's something like that that you've kind of done or more recently maybe involving pharmacy students and medical students, perhaps. Yeah. So we have pivoted pretty much like many people pivoted many of our activities to the online setting. One experience that I was part of working on was a telehealth experience for pharmacy and medical students in the context of COVID. So it was it was early in the pandemic, and several faculty came together and said, you know, hey, this is a great opportunity. Normally, you know, our learners are on clinical rotations, but right now we're on pause. They can't be in clinical settings. Is there a way that we could actually leverage the challenges that we're facing right now in, in terms of our curriculum? And and bring learners together in the virtual space. And so learners that from medicine and pharmacy reached out to patients who were thought to be kind of at high risk 
in the context of COVID, maybe not getting the care that they needed because of concerns about the pandemic. And so reaching out to those patients, connecting with them, and doing joint uh, telehealth visits on Zoom. So that was actually, you know, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. (laughs) Um, And I think kind of reflects the creativity that you have to have when you're thinking about uh, interprofessional education, um, really trying to capitalize on, you know, those opportunities that exist and, and thinking creatively about bringing learners together. That's great. Are there things kind of throughout all this work that you've been most excited about or most surprised by? Yeah, I mean, I I mentioned just how it's enriched my life, certainly from a clinical standpoint, but also educationally to work with colleagues across professions. I think the other thing is just seeing students have those aha moments in the context of, for example, the standardized patient experience where we bring learners together. We have chaplains participate in that. And, you know, that's certainly a health profession that we rarely see interacting with patients. You know, they come in after we've been in the room and just hit, seeing students have those moments of like, oh, my God, that chaplain was amazing. Um, those were uh, issues that I didn't even know existed for this patient. Um, and well, I'm really going to think about how to engage um, other health professions moving forward, because now I actually know what they do and what they could bring to that patient encounter. So I think those aha moments that students have are really um, gratifying and so something that keeps me in this work, for sure. I feel like we have those aha moments as lifelong learners, like I feel like a constant student where I'm like, oh my gosh, of course, the nurse on the team found out this key piece of information that I had just totally entirely overlooked. Or the pharmacist was like, are you sure you like this interaction of medication? So it's a, I I feel like those aha moments continue. And I, I just wonder, you know, you've kind of made me so excited about IPE, Maria, over time. Uh, I wonder if I was, you know, or John in our scenario, like, do you have any tips for us to just like go and get started and create such experiences or support learners if if they want to create IPE experiences in their settings? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of getting started, you know, I always tell people to start small. Um, I think, you know, it's so exciting to do this work. And I think sometimes we bite up more than we can chew. So it's like, oh, I'm going to have, you know, three different professions come into my clinic and starting small, maybe just who's already in your environment and how can you enhance the interprofessional learning that's already happening. So I think that I think is key, being creative I think the other thing that I would say is building on the work that other people have done. I think in medicine, we often want to reinvent the wheel, right? We're like, oh, well, you know, but I want to create this brand new curriculum. Uh, I think there's so much out there and people have freely shared. So, you know, MedEd Portal is one of my favorite spaces um, where you can find curriculum and they do have an interprofessional curriculum repository. The other place um, is the Nexus. Nexus is the National Coordinating Center for Interprofessional Education and Practice, and they have a lot of curricular resources. They also have an assessment collection. So if you're thinking about, you know, how do I assess these competencies, that's a place. Um, so I think um, that would be, I think, a key piece of learning. And then, you know, making sure to involve faculty from the other profession. When you're trying to create an experience, you know, don't go it alone. Make sure that you have buy-in from faculty from that profession as well who are going to know their learners, where they're at, 
can help you troubleshoot some of the logistics. So those are all, I think, lessons learned over time that I talk to faculty about. Well, those sound like amazing resources, and we will certainly link to them in the show notes. You had also mentioned the importance of, as a faculty, being sort of skilled in this and being trained in this. Do you have resources for faculty to gain skills around working with interprofessional groups and, and teaching around that? Yeah, so at UCSF, we we actually have an interprofessional teaching certificate, um, which is a series of workshops that faculty can participate in to give them some of these skills. And so I would imagine there are probably other institutions that have similar programs, um, but that's, you know, I think that's something. I believe the National Center may have um, some projects going around faculty development. And we also have a peer observation program around interprofessional teaching. So we have a group of trained faculty that will come in and watch you do interprofessional teaching and, and give feedback. And so those are all resources that we've kind of developed locally. But I, I do think that there's been a lot of attention and focus on the faculty development piece, because I feel like it's very hard to t- teach and model these skills if you were never taught them yourself. <laughs> And I wonder, Maria, if there's, you know, we're faculty coming to you being like, help us, help us help ourselves to start something like this. But what if there's students or learners coming to you saying, you know, I really would love to see what folks in other roles or professions are doing and maybe kind of creating a clinical experience with that. Do you have any suggestions there about what those learners could do or how they could get started? Yeah, we have some really, I mean, honestly, we have some really great learner developed initiatives at UCSF. I think that learners are creative and if they want to, they want to do things, they do them. We have a, there's a, it's called the Mabuhai Clinic that was clinic developed actually by four different health profession students groups at UCSF that came together and it's a free clinic. And they practice totally interprofessionally. They have uh, interprofessional faculty, volunteers. They have clinic once a month. So I think, you know, there, there are definite examples out there where students have driven this curriculum. Um, and so I think finding faculty champions is important in anything that you do. And, you know, not being daunted by people saying no. I think. <laughs> But I, I think students honestly, are some of the most powerful voices and can really drive this kind of change. And so I've been really impressed at the student-led initiatives, at least at our institution. Uh, I'm always impressed when students manage to have the the time and the motivation and the, the energy to create things like that. So impressive. Do you have a dream for kind of optimal interprofessional education, like a five to 10 year vision of what your ideal program would look like? Yeah, I mean, we've built this kind of foundational curriculum at UCSF. And I think one of the biggest challenges is the clinical space. I mean, we have, I think the interprofessional practice has lagged behind our education, right? So I, I think we can all think of like amazing examples of places where collaboration is happening. But still, I think in a lot of our clinical spaces, we're practicing in silos, right? You know, there might be occasional interaction, but we're we're kind of like in our own lanes doing our own thing. And so unless my dream would be that interprofessional care is just something that's part and parcel of the way we operate in the clinical setting and that everything is kind of set up to support that. Like we do interprofessional team rounds and we, but the reality is I think we're still pretty far from that. Um, I think it's aspirational goal. So I think in the, in the absence of that, I would love to see 
all of our learners have the opportunity to at least have one rotation in a setting that's truly interprofessional where there is that team-based care model in a more ideal fashion so that they can see those skills in action, they can practice the skills that we're teaching them, and then we can do an assessment of their skills. I think that's the other thing is that, you know, assessment often drives learning. And I I don't think we have robust assessments yet for interprofessional collaboration. Um, You know, what what exists um, in most institutions is you ask the for the medical students, you ask the physician supervisor, how is this person with interprofessional collaboration? When really, we should probably be asking the medical assistant or the, you know, the nurse on the floor. And we, we you know, we're not there yet. So I think that is another thing that we, we need to do better at. And Maria, if you had a magic wand, speaking of assessment, would you create it? Would it be a totally different rubric based on those domains that you mentioned at the very beginning? Or what would that kind of look like potentially, like optimal assessment of these skills? Yeah. So I think, you know, I think we would be looking at the competencies and that we would have a tool to use in clinical settings that we could apply and that could be used you know, not only by the supervising uh, attending or faculty member, but also by other team members. And I think, you know, people are, there are people trying to develop those tools, um, but we're not, we're not quite there yet. Lots of work to be done. (laughs) Yes. John has a whole career in front of him. (laughs) <laughs> John is going to listen to this podcast three times because he needs to get, yeah, you exactly. work together get, get all some those, inspiration all and, and yes. motivation yes yeah, we're, we're super excited that John is joining our group <laughs> well Maria do you have any specific you know uh, I don't know if we should transition Molly if it's time but any main take-home points for our listeners Maria in your perspective yeah, I mean, I think I think it's pretty clear that all of our learners need these collaborative care competencies and that our clinical environments are going to be increasingly interprofessional. Um, we've definitely seen it at our institution, and I think we're going to continue to see that. Um, so it's going to be part and parcel of what we do. And so we need to figure out how to teach uh, learners these skills and how to assess them. I don't think it's a one and done. I don't think like, oh, well, if we teach them when they're students, then, you know, they'll be great as residents and then, you know, on to, you know, being practicing clinicians. I think like many skills, communication, we all know that like, it's not like you just teach them in medical school. It's just something that we're all continuing to work on. So I think having that framework in mind, I think the other thing is, you know, developing meaningful IPE is challenging, but it's worth doing and can be done. Um, We have a lot of examples of that. The other thing that I would say is find allies in this work. You know, that's what has sustained me. And so find people either at your own institution or at institutions locally or at national institutions. So, I mean, you know, national organizations like Society of General Internal Medicine, like the American Interprofessional Health Collaborative, um, like the Nexus, you know, there's a national conference that they do every year. So finding those allies and best practices and then building on others' work. Um, I think, you know, don't reinvent the wheel. If you can repurpose or use materials that someone else has designed, all, all the better, you know, because if we all keep creating some of this stuff, you know, it, it just takes a lot of time and energy. Those would be my take-home points. Wonderful summary. Thank you so much. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to plug? Any recent publications or anything that you wanted to, to share with our audience? 
Um, I, I will say that we just recently published on MedEd Portal our peer observation training, which we call ITOP or Interprofessional Team Teaching Observation Program. So that is something you could look for on MedEd Portal if you're looking to develop a faculty development program around interprofessional teaching. So that, that would be my one plug. Wonderful. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you so much, Maria. Yeah, this, this was fantastic. Well, that was just such a wonderful episode with Dr. Wamsley. I, I feel like she is just such an inspiration from all her work in IPE. One thing I, I really took away from her work is not reinventing the wheel, that there are a lot of really smart and thoughtful people who have tried this and perfected different techniques around this. And so using some of those resources to create a curriculum, if that's something that you're going to work on, I think is a a really valuable resource. I agree, Molly. I think just kind of even starting, we were joking earlier on the nano level, just kind of naming what experiences are happening for learners. I think the other piece that uh, Dr. Wamsley told me about or taught me about is really the competencies in IPE and the four different domains that she mentioned, the values and ethics, the interprofessional communication, roles and responsibilities and teams and teamwork. I think having that structure really helps me understand the foundation for any interprofessional educational experience and kind of what it's meant to get across. So I'm really excited to start th- start to think about how to put this into practice. And you've got them just rolling off your tongue. You're ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> you know it. You know it's solidified on here and on a Word document. Well, you know, we're, wherever. <laughs> This has been another episode of our Curbsiders mini-series, The Curbsiders Teach. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash teach. We also have some other great resources on our website, so do check that out. A special thanks to Dr. Matt Watto and Dr. Paul Williams for their support in this project and to Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music. Also, thanks to Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio and to our social media team, Andrew DeLatt on Instagram and John Ung on Twitter and Tima Karganoff on our website. And we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we really need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsidersteach at gmail.com. And a reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals. It is an interprofessional education episode, so let's do this. And that's available at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. I'm Dr. Ira Krishnovskaya. And I've been Dr. Molly Hoyblind. Thank you for joining us today and letting us bring you a little nugget of medical edutainment. <laughs>